I want to welcome everyone to the uh, Movement is Life Health Disparities uh, podcast. And uh, this evening, we're going to be talking to some folks about the impact of health disparities, and in particular, some of the things going on right now, and some of the issues that uh, folks are confronting, and the challenges that people find in delivering health care in rural uh, underserved areas. With us, uh, we have Shannon Chambers, who is with the South Carolina Office of Rural Health, uh, Elizabeth Ellis, who is with the um, BIS uh, Clinic in, is it Bedias? Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, BIS Community Clinic in Bedias, Texas. Bedias, all right. And uh, Roger Wells uh, is in Nebraska in Lexington, uh, Nebraska, in a rural health clinic there. Welcome, everybody. If um, Why don't you give our audience a little bit of a, a in some insight into you, uh, what you do in the communities where you serve, some about your, your background, your credentials, uh, so folks have a sense of who they're listening to tonight. We'll start out with Elizabeth. My name is Elizabeth Ellis. I'm a uh, doctor of nursing practice, family nurse practitioner. Been here in Beatles, Texas now, going on 12 years. And we opened our rural health clinic um, coming up on three years this September. We are the only healthcare clinic in Northern Grimes County, which is quite a large county. We are located between Madisonville, Texas and College Station. It is a uh, rural underserved area. I've been practicing as a nurse practitioner going on 25 years now. I started my career out in rural health. A couple of years ago, I decided it was time to return back to my roots. Roger, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, good evening. I'm Roger Wells. I'm a physician assistant in rural Nebraska. I've been a physician assistant for 33 years after initially being an athletic trainer. And previously, I did uh, primary care with the emergency department inpatient nursing home. I worked uh, OB. I, I have uh, a actually a very, very rare degree. I was actually a surgical assistant as well as physician assistant when I got out of school. Uh, and I used to do OB and, and sigmoidoscopies, everything, but as times changed, so have I. At this time, I work in a town of approximately 10,000 people. The median age is very young, about 29, but we have uh, a lot of uh, Hispanic, 16, Latino, 61%. Uh, black and African are 7%, Asian 1%, and only 31% Caucasian. It's been an exciting experience here. And the, the biggest issue is our largest and largest employers are meatpacking companies. So we're uh, in the overload of COVID-19. We have about 73 languages in this community in the last wow. 10 years. And uh, we're mostly feedlots, row crop, hay, and uh, vineyards, believe it or not. So it's, we're really agricultural based. So it's been a real pleasure, 34% Medicare, 13% Medicaid, 7% uh, insured, and 46% uh, commercial because of the packing plant. And uh, Shannon, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, I'm Shannon Chambers. I'm with the South Carolina Office of Rural Health. In that role, I support the 84 rural health clinics across our state from anything from billing and coding to compliance, um, anything really that they need. I have been doing a lot with rural testing across South Carolina for the last month, so yet another hat. You've, you've uh, both Roger and Elizabeth mentioned that they're in rural health clinics, but uh, Shannon, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about uh, what is a rural health clinic? So while it is a clinic that can, is located in a rural area, you know, there are two types of rural health clinics. There's a provider-based rural health clinic, which is normally owned and operated by a bigger hospital system. 
And then we have our independent rural health clinics, which are standalone. And I think the important thing to remember here is these are the centers and clinics that really support those rural regions um, and their communities. And they are the backbone of a lot of these communities. So uh, Elizabeth and, and Roger, you, you know, you both uh, have had uh, lengthy careers. Uh, Roger, you said you've always been out there in Nebraska uh, and prior to, or previously being an athletic trainer. Um, Elizabeth, you were uh, coming back to your roots. Um, why rural? What was it that made you want to practice uh, in a rural underserved area? We'll start out with uh, Elizabeth. With my initial career outside of college, just out of college, I traveled rural Mississippi Delta, and I um, met a nurse practitioner serving a very underserved area there and was so impressed with what she was doing for her patients, I decided that's what I needed to be doing. I I love rural health because... um, the people, um, number one, they don't have access to health and being there for them provides them an opportunity that they may not have otherwise and being there to help educate and coach and live with them alongside of them and with their health issues and their family issues, it's it's extremely rewarding to be able to serve them. Um, rural America, which is about, I guess, about 20% of America, is um, the health disparities are nothing like um, urban areas. We have um, higher comorbid conditions. Um, the patient, most patients have more than four, sometimes 20 plus diagnoses, and they're poor, they're underserved, they have limited access to quality health care, or they may have to drive long distances to get that health care. And they have, um, uh, transportation liabilities, and we we actually serve a tremendous amount of people who are uninsured, who don't qualify for Medicaid, they're not quite Medicare age, and they are agricultural farmers and, and laborers, and they just make just, you know, they just don't make enough to be able to pay for insurance. And so they often go y- many years without any health care until they hit Medicare. And so we're doing our best to try and, and treat them and manage them and give them an opportunity to manage their health before it becomes too late. We also work with them on their agricultural exposure, their safety issues on the farm and exposure to chemicals and products and, and injuries, really try and increase education that they may not have otherwise. That's why I love doing rural health because um, otherwise these I feel like I'm serving my mission. And um, these people are, are tremendously grateful and they become a part of you and they become family. I hear that from a lot. Roger, um, how about for you? Why rural? I chose the rural track because of my wife's family. My wife's uh, grandfather had COPD. It was very, very bad. Uh, and I watched him suffer and have a lack of resources that would allow him just to have basic cares and education about his disease and watched him fade away. And I tried as much as I could to help him out as much as, you know, to, to assist him as much as possible, but really hurt to watch that and watch the resources that were limited and, and be able to do nothing. That was terrible. And then my father developed heart disease and I watched him get infection after he had his bypass and then develop hepatitis C and all the issues that they 
didn't understand their habits. My passion became to take care of them. And luckily, and being blessed as much as I have, I had the opportunity to go back into actually a rural area where I grew up in a population of about 80 people and started a practice there and developed myself and take care of things. And I was really allowed to go on and do some national things because of my, my passion. Uh, I was able to continue forward and now have a tremendous job to pushing that forward to other people who are now not able to get what they need. Just like Elizabeth said, she identified all these issues that are not recognized on a piece of paper or a dot that gets checked. And these social determinants of health are more important than anything else we do. And if we don't open our arms to this and wrap our arms around it, going to be a lot of people get hurt. And I'm just really honored to be here to help explain this, at least my feeling. But man, having that and, and witness that, that disability being blocked and taking my dad and ventricular tachycardia standing in my house and taking him to the hospital and actually driving him two and a half hours to Omaha was a real awakening for me. And I'll tell you what, uh, it opened up my heart to a lot of people. The, uh, you both touched on uh, the health disparities. And of course, this is the Health Disparities uh, podcast. What are some of the, the drivers uh, that you see in health disparities? And, and uh, Shannon, I want to bring you in um, kind of from a statewide perspective in South Carolina. What do you see as some of the major drivers of health disparities uh, in rural communities in South Carolina? Transportation is huge still. Um, that is something that, you know, if we could build the Uber of rural health, um, where we could get people to their doctor's appointments, you know, I'm in a state where we have very high diabetes, um, you know, especially being in the South. Um, and I think that is a huge issue for our um for our people and trying to make sure that as we start to think about ways that, you know, we can improve chronic disease, how are we going to reach those people, especially during all of this COVID stuff where people are not showing up for their preventative visits, they're, you know, too scared to come into the doctor's office and trying to remind people that at this point, you know, if you don't take care of the wellness stuff and the preventative stuff, you know, that's going to help alleviate some of those health disparities moving forward. Elizabeth, in your community, uh, Roger talked about the, the demographics of his community, the large uh, minority population uh, in his area, the, the multitude of languages. Is that typical of what you see uh, in your community as well? I, and I ask that because I think, you know, there's often a perception that rural America is white America, that it's predominantly uh, Caucasian population. Um, and yet, you know, as Roger said, and, and we look at many rural communities, actually is a much more diverse uh, community out there. What's your experience in your part of Texas? We are probably not quite as diverse as Rogers area in Nebraska, but we, we certainly are. We have a significant uh, uh, population of Hispanics, um, African-American. We have Native Indian population, and then we you know, certainly have Caucasian. And we also have a, uh, an increasing Asian and Indian population here in our area. We, our area though is predominantly, I have a tremendous uh, Medicare aged population. Uh, they are my largest uh, po uh, population, probably over 60% of the patients that I serve are 65 and older. Um, then the predominance is the rest is in the middle, but we do have um, a significant um, diverse population. It is not limited to just uh, white America. What does that do in terms of uh, comorbid conditions or things that 
maybe associated with that. Um, what are some of the 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 comorbid conditions that you see that that seem to be very dominant in your community? Well, with genetics, it's predominantly what a lot of people think of first, and that's diabetes, um, and then hypertension. Um, and then, of course, with so many rural Americans, they have a significant history of smoking and our other types of tobacco use and agricultural exposure. That's the biggest uh, uh, reason for their COPD um, because of the Im conditions in the dust and the chemicals and things that they uh, are in exposed to every day in their careers and their livelihoods that has increased their COPD. Um, and emphysema, um, but those are our largest. Um, and then all of that leads to heart condition. Over, over, I would say probably over 50 plus percent of the population is diabetic and hypertension with heart disease. And then COPD is following right behind. Roger, is that uh, typical of what you experience in, uh, in Nebraska? Let's step back and I think this is really important. 120 miles from here, exactly right. 120 miles from here, white, uh, COPD, diabetes, et cetera. Here, no, the average age 29 to 30 years old. And so our issue is cultural understanding, to understand uh, in a person in their wants, needs, and preferences, can you shake their hand? Can you look in their eyes and, 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 and acknowledge them? Is that something that they like to do? Uh, what's their priority in life? Many of these people have seven or 10 or 15 people in a household and they have COVID-19. And how do they, how are you going to help these people? So their priority with the resources that they have is much different than maybe 100 miles from here or like Elizabeth is speaking about there, which is completely different. And we have to be able to look at these communities so much differently because this previous, everybody, like you said, Bill, uh, they look at recent, you know, their previous uh, thought process in rural America, just 120 miles away can be completely different. Healthcare maintenance such as colonoscopies, mammograms are not even thought of because many of these cultures only go when they're sick or they have a broken arm or they have a large laceration. We don't look at wellness. We look at uh, just injury and trauma and trying to take these cultures and shift them into a wellness program that's paid by their insurance because we have 40 some percent of it paid by insurance and try to get them in the clinic and understand that it's a whole new shift for me to try to understand and assist this population. It's uh, been good. And then, like Elizabeth said, and, and so does Shannon, you know, with the specialty clinics, uh, they don't even think about specialty clinics. And if something's wrong and we can't fix that, which, what are we going there for? Uh, it's, it's something you have to have a discussion about. And then the worst for me to try to understand is this the interpreter. To get a relationship with a patient, it's not going to tell you about incest or any problem within the family. Uh, and those things are very difficult. So understanding the culture has to come first. And then going back and looking at the wants, needs, and preferences has been an eye-opener and a great experience for me. You've talked about, the, we've talked a little bit about the comorbid conditions. And one of the things that we see uh, nationally is uh, the, the correlation between the presence of comorbid conditions and the severity of COVID-19. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in the way of COVID and what impact uh, it has had in your communities, both from a, a patient or clinical perspective, but also from an economic perspective. Because one of the things that you know we're seeing is that uh, as a consequence of COVID, a lot of patients are just staying away and they're not going to the doctor or they're not going to the nurse practitioner or the PA or whomever 
they're staying home. And of course, that means you're not getting revenue in. And, and what's been the impact both clinically and economically uh, in your community and then Shannon uh, in your state to, to try and help shine a light on this for, for our audience? We'll start out this time with uh, Elizabeth uh, and what, what you're seeing in your community from uh, with regard to COVID. In rural America, I think are fortunate in that being rural has kept us, you know, in less exposure. But in my county, there's very few jobs in the area. So they have to travel outside of our county to larger areas, metropolitan areas to to get um, employment. So therefore, then they're leaving the county and getting potentially at risk and getting exposed and then coming back into the county. Um, in addition, but our county itself has had very few cases. I think we're like at 60 some odd right now. And the majority of those cases, unfortunately, have been in our detention center. Um, so there's been very few um, residents that actually um, have obtained, you know, come down with COVID. And we've been very fortunate that way. But unfortunately, our employee, the TDC system is a large employer. So all of those employees who work in the um, detention system are getting exposed and that's increasing our risk. We, um, you know, being a travel, a travel through community, our county is a pass through community for so many other areas to get to another distance location that that is potentially putting us at risk. The biggest impact for these folks is their loss of business. Um, because they have shut down their small businesses are their livelihoods, whether it be the cafe, whether it be a hairdresser or our bee farmers, which is our largest um, uh, employment and uh, our chicken farmers here in the area. So and, and they're nobody's buying beef right now. And um, so therefore their, their uh, livelihood is at risk um, and they have no other source of income. Um, for so many. So unfortunately, because we've had to social distance and shut down operations that has has made a tremendous financial impact adversely on uh, almost all of the citizens here in our area. And how about your clinic itself? It's made a uh, financial adverse impact. It has hurt us tremendously because patients are doing what they were told to do. And that's staying at home and we did not get the authority to be able to do telehealth um, being a rural health clinic until almost uh, a month in, I think, pretty close, um, at least four plus weeks in. And so that impacted us. Um, my clinic did actually have to shut down for several days because a person of investigation, you know, we were exposed to and the CDC here in the area wanted us to shut down until we knew the outcome because we were such a small building in such a small clinic, um, then yes, financially it is, it is, it is adversely impacted us as I think it has all of the healthcare providers in the area, um, and in the neighboring communities. Now, Roger, your experience in Nebraska and where you are is quite different than what Elizabeth has experienced, at least in terms of the COVID, uh, situation. Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in your area with regard to COVID and the impact that that's had. Well, COVID-19 has been devastating to this community because we have 10,000 people 
we have over 810, uh, actually 812 yesterday, uh, documented COVID-19 patients. Those people are only tested at, usually at the health department or if they come through our emergency department and are admitted. Okay, and we know that around 30% of these people are gonna have false negatives. And so we don't really have an idea of how many there is, but the use of PPE, the use of specialty doors, uh, not allowing people to even walk in the clinic door until they're screened outside in the street to walk in. Having special doors for the sick patients, special doors for the clean clinic, trying to keep the, the, the very yellow and the very old uh, and the high-risk patients in a separate uh, area has been a real challenge. Luckily, we have a good, uh, we have a great uh, administrative team and medical staff that really take care of things. But in, in spite of that, it has been just devastating to the whole community in the, in the medical field because we don't have any surgeries. You don't have any inpatients unless they're COVID-19 and their PPE and their cost is just huge, more than any percentage points that they're going to get as a benefit and reimbursement. But when we look at the comorbidities, uh, you're looking at uh, uh, 2,500 working in one beef packing plant. And it's not, the, it's not the beef packing plant issue. These people need to work. They go to work. And you know as well as I do that 17% of people don't even have a temperature. And they're going to work. And they're taking everybody's temperature on the way in. But they're just holding their cough. And they're going to work. And by the time they spread it, because they want to work. And they're proud to work. And they're very good people. Uh, and so this thing just gets spread and it's still spreading. Uh, I walked in, into the hallway today and, I, and they were having trouble with a very heavy lady getting her up this, up this uh, a little ramp. And so I grabbed a hold of the ramp and went up and she goes, I'm sorry, she's COVID, man. Get out of here. And so by the time I even knew about it, those kinds of people are showing up at our doorstep in, in large numbers. And it's the, the, the comorbidities, as Elizabeth has gone to, and it's the, uh, a lot of uh, Hispanic, uh, probably 67%, uh, because they all live in households, like we spoke of earlier, uh, that commingle. Uh, co and then just because they, they're proud individuals that they want to work. And so most of them will call up, and even after two to three weeks, they're not able to go back to work because they get such a severe illness. So it's been a challenge. Luckily, uh, on the other side of the coin, when you lose the whole ambulance crew or two hospice nurses, or uh, Meals on Wheels, now look who's getting hurt. Now the elderly are getting hurt, and now they're going out to try to get meals, and they're trying to go to the local grocery store to get food, and now we just contaminated them. So this is a cycle of things that no one would really look at in a city. Shannon, uh, in, uh, in South Carolina, kind of what has been the experience? You were telling me the other day about some uh, efforts you're doing to increase testing, and uh, there was a particular community uh, you were telling me about where they started doing testing and what they found. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So really across our state, we've had about 9,300 positive cases um, and about 400 deaths. And that's probably as of yesterday. 46% um, of those deaths are um, African-American. Um, so, of course, trying to get more education. As for the clinic that you're referring to, um, we recently had one of our rural health clinics do a testing site, a community testing site, and had over 100 people come through, and only one of them were showing symptoms. Out of that testing site, they had 14 people that were positive. 13 of those people were Hispanic. Um, so what they're trying to do now is go back and contact Trace to see if they all live in the same location or, you know, our DHEC, um, our Department of Health and Environmental Control is handling a lot of the contact tracing here in our state. 
it's been interesting because what our office was able to do was to take their brochure and then also translate it over to Spanish. Um, and they had a whole bunch that came through, a whole bunch of Hispanic people that came through that testing site and realized that that is definitely a best practice. We have another site that is going to go up in the first week of June, um, and we're already working on assisting them with developing the resources so that they can also reach into their um, Hispanic communities there. I would say one of the really cool things that our office um, recently heard about is a small community that we're doing testing in the first week of June. They actually reached out to the local um, like Sonic and McDonald's, et cetera, and they're going to run the testing information across their signs um, to let the community know that that's a resource and that it's coming. So it's been very interesting to see the different small communities and how they're standing up for each other. I have two independent clinics getting ready to want, run one testing site, and you just don't hear about that. That's, that's fantastic. We're really proud of them. Elizabeth, are you doing much testing uh, in your area? Probably not, not as much as uh, some of the clinics that Shannon has spoke of because of we haven't had as many patients come to us with uh, symptoms but I have done a significant amount. And fortunately, none of my patients have tested positive, but we also know that there's probably a 30% uh, false negative on some of those patients. The lower half of the county does have drive-through testing um, located with one of the critical access hospitals there. And um, then the neighboring big counties um, have uh, drive-through testing and they are doing a, a tremendous amount. Our neighboring counties, Walker County, Montgomery County, and Bra um, Brazos, and then we are just north of Houston, have had tremendous cases. And I, I'm just waiting for the, I guess, the repercussions of our folks who are traveling back and forth to go to work. Roger, are you doing much testing out your way or just dealing with the consequences or a little bit of both? Uh, we're trying to follow the CDC guidelines. And so, because we do not have, uh, we're only allocated a very small amount of testing. And we were testing in the clinic, trying to at least find the positive people initially. That's pretty well stopped unless they have severe symptoms. We test them, uh, it's mostly through the health department uh, activity that we can get done. We call the health department, they okay the test. We do the health department through them. We do have now the ability to use in-house testing. We just started that Monday. It's very few uh, take, you know, uh, what's a certain company. We do have some availability of that for the patients who are inpatient, but again, uh, that's very limited. So most of our, our issue is education. So I, when I spend time on telehealth or telemedicine, whatever you want to call it today, uh, we do a lot of education about what, how, what's going to happen, how long is it going to take, uh, what symptoms you're going to have. Hey, my baby's got it now. He's seven months old. Is my first patient this morning. What do I do? Uh, is it going to get this neonatal syndrome that, that comes around in six months? What do I watch for? And so we spend much more time rather than testing because unless they're very, very ill, uh, to just do the educational piece and be accept, uh, accessible for them in the future. You touched on social determinants of health a little bit. I'd like to focus a little bit more on that. What are, are some of the key social determinants of health that you see uh, in your communities or your state? And, and some ideas on what you think might be able to be done to try uh, and address those. Um, we'll start with Elizabeth. 
Well, I, I think access, um, that's always an issue with rural health. Um, even though there are, you know, we're, we're in the midst of the middle of large, you know, and surrounded by large counties that have um, some bigger hospital systems, we, to truly get to a large medical uh, medical center, if you will, down in Houston, we're, we're almost two hours away. Now we do have, you know, um, two area hospitals that are um, anywhere from 35 to 45 minutes away. Um, but lack of um, reliable transportation is an issue. We do have a Grimes County um, Transport Health Transport um, through the Health Resource uh, Center, but they only have one van. So, and that's not enough to serve this large county. I think that's that's one thing that has to change. Um, the other big issue is lack of reliable internet services. Um, the, these people do not have access to that. Uh, my clinic, I'm not even on high speed fiber and it's just now coming into our county and we don't even know if we're gonna be able to afford to get hooked up. I think any rural health clinic needs to be hooked up to high speed fiber for free, given all these government grants so that we can properly serve our patients. But, and we can you know, then consult specialists and have um, them you know, treat our patients here um, with you know, faster access. Uh, I think um, access to quality you know, food is another issue. And, um, and our folks usually have to travel way down 35, 40 minutes to a decent grocery store or outside of the county to even get to a substantial grocery store. Um, so that's another problem. Yes, we do have the food bank, um, but as Roger led to, a lot of people are very proud and um, that, that's an issue with them. And then in addition, the agricultural exposures, um, people just don't understand what um, rural America uh, is exposed to and the types of health issues that they, they do encounter in, in comparison to urban. Because on every street corner in a large city, you have an emergency room. Uh, and you can look in four corners and there's one on at least three of them. They're about, you know, anywhere from 15 minutes plus, you know, to hours away, you know, for a lot of rural America. And that that's a problem. It would be like if you had to go from Washington DC to Baltimore for a doctor's visit or to go to a hospital and, and, you know, people in this area, are like what, that's crazy. Why would, and it's like, well, that's, you know, rural America. And that's, that's 45 minutes away. And, and most people would be happy to be able to be 45 minutes away from uh, a hospital. Um, but in most cases it's, it's a couple of hours. I, I think that's one of the things that people don't understand about, about rural. Shannon, you know, what about for South Carolina? What are some of the key social determinants of health and, and what are some of the things we might be able to do to address those? I definitely have to agree with some of the things that Elizabeth said. You know, transportation is something that's really huge. Um, our office had actually a few years ago developed something called the Rural Health Action Plan and it addressed a lot of the social determinants of health. It also looked at schools, it looked at food, it looked at access um, and all of that. So I think we learned a lot from that and how to partner with people. 
you know, how to partner with technical schools to be able to figure out how to have different programs where the kids that are in high school are also earning um, credits towards degrees in college. Um, for the social determinants of health, you know, I have to think of it's, you know, live, love, and where you work and play, I guess, if that makes sense. And, you know, we see a lot of different things such as trying to communicate with some of the Department of Aging and different ways that we can get senior resources out. That's been a huge thing as part of this COVID stuff and making sure that people understand, you know, dropping off groceries and, you know, keeping your distance and all of that throughout this process, you know, hand washing, all of that. I think telehealth is a huge, huge opportunity for us. The problem, again, is broadband. Um, we've actually been able to work with some of the school districts to open up um, access to their um, to the iPads that some of the kids are given in certain areas in certain districts, where one of them was able to actually download their telehealth app onto the iPads so that people could do free telehealth services through the iPads, which all of the technology and you know iPads are supported through the schools. I worry about how that's going to work now that summer's almost here for these kids. We've had additional places that have opened up Wi-Fi and said that they can do that out in their parking lots, um, churches and schools. Um, it's been a great process to kind of sit back and watch about how people can work together. I think, but until we can get more broadband in our rural areas, um, we're just going to be stuck not being able to do some of this telehealth stuff. And, and Roger, what's uh, what's it like for you? Those are just tremendous efforts of Shannon and Elizabeth. Wow. Um, I agree with the food deserts because even though you may have a store, it doesn't mean you have money to put into the store to get, the, to get anything. The second thing is housing. To be able to have housing and reimbursement for appropriate housing is really important, especially as we've already identified before. You know, some people have two or three, four families within a housing structure and trying to... to um, allow some for independence, but I look at it uh, with the broadband is it really 57% of the people have enough broadband with to do a video chat, 57%. That would be it if they have a phone, okay? And they have to have a phone with enough, uh, a new, you know, not a flip phone that's really common around here. Uh, we're looking at issues that they estimate about 70% of your visits could be done by telehealth if we had the experience and do it successfully. If they had a blood pressure cuff, and we could do some of those things like that. We could save lots and lots and lots of money, but we don't have the ability to bend the rules to identify new challenges and new things that we could do or innovations without going through a whole, pardon my expression, act of Congress to try to get a, a modification and just giving us the, uh, the latitude to move over here, you know, like a home health. Why couldn't home health deliver meals on wheels during the same time you're doing a home health visit? And why, you know, all of a sudden we have this latitude to do this, but now are you going to take it away? And how kind of planning? But we have to have that planning. The second thing with uh, that is that our, our jobs out here are high risk. So when you look at social determinants of health, these people are, are climbing 100 feet in the air, looking at elevators and grain dropping down into this bin. And, and that's part of their job where they're working on a machine that's uh, have a spinning wheel that's going around 5,000 times a minute. And it's it's got a little housing, or, you know, trying to protect it. You're trying to tighten the belts. You know, these people get hurt and you don't have the ability to transfer these people out. So I, I think interconnected abilities from like Shan's talking about, 
from the higher levels from larger institutions coming down with a network to the smaller places like rural health clinics, which would really be valuable. And then we can identify different loops, but let us have the, the uh, pleasure of identifying how we can fix things. All of a sudden we've given this tremendous ability to change uh, these determinants of health, but how long is that going to last? So these high-risk people that get injured or high-risk jobs or they're using knives every day, or they're, you know, I mean, a guy that just 50 pounds fell 40 feet and he was bent over and hit him in the back. You imagine what that would be like. And those are the kinds of injuries that we see in some of these people. So looking at through all these things and being able to have the ability to jump back and forth and, and try things out without having a trial of $100,000, 16 uh, pages just for the explanation of what we have to do, then send it in for six months and see if anybody likes it or not. Yeah, we need to move now and get this stuff done. You know, uh, we're going to start wrapping it up here, but two things that I, that struck me as really uh, interesting and I think instructive. Um, both Elizabeth and, and Roger, you've mentioned uh, food deserts and, and food. And I think for a lot of folks, uh, and I think Shannon, you did as well, that when you think about rural and that, you know, it's farming, it's agriculture, the idea that here you are surrounded by food, right? Whether it's the animals for beef or pork or grain um, and, and whether it, you know, whoever, whatever you're in, but yet, so the thought that you would be in a food desert almost seems illogical because you're surrounded by food. The other thing that, that you've touched on, which I think is, is illustrative and, and instructive for folks, there's this thought that your primary care clinics and that, oh, well, that just means you take care of, you know, the sniffles, the flu, you know, you know, patients who are coming in do some preventive visits. Um, you know, I think about about my primary care doctor here in in Northern Virginia, where I live, and it's a pretty slow practice. You know, pretty laid back. Uh, you know, they they have a doc and a nurse practitioner, or a doc and a PA, depending on uh, which day of the week he switches. You know, I never see anything in there of trauma, but both Elizabeth and Roger, you both talked about about trauma. Um, and you're 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 not just you're not a primary care clinic in the sense that people think of that sometimes. You're almost like a mini emergency room. You're an urgent care center. You are you're not just dealing with you know it's the patient who's come in the farm patient. You're an, you're an occupational health professional because you're dealing with the the occupational health issues. Um, that's I think one of the messages that people need to understand too is that you know, being a healthcare provider in a rural area uh, is, is not just be the person who's gonna give the shots, see the, the patients, see the flu, see the, do the vaccinations. You're, you're a much more, the, the patients that you're seeing um, are in many cases very seriously uh, injured or ill, uh, and you're the only shop in town. And so you're dealing with everybody, not just that subset of patients that you know, slight, you know, a, a calm, easy primary care practice you might see in a more sub, in a suburban area. Yeah, I, I'll say, Bill. After after having been in you know I practiced urban uh, healthcare um, for over 15 years, and then returning back to rural health, I'd forgotten how complicated rural health could be, and the problems and uh, issues that we see in the we are first responders and often the first thing that you know people walk in the door whether it be a major trauma or a heart attack or a stroke um we're we're the first line responders for 
for these people. And having that broad, you know, skill set, you know, goes back to my emergency room nurse days to starting out in rural health. I had to re relearn a lot of my skills and pull some of my skills back out of my repertoire uh, to be able to handle some of the things. I've seen things I haven't seen in years here in rural America, practicing in large urban cities. It just is the nature of things. The other biggest disparity I do have to comment on is lack of psychiatric resources and having um, psychiatric providers that are accessible, that their panels are not full, that they will take the patients. Even though we do have a government you know, mental health resource um, in the uh, area, that they still trying to get appointments and for them to have enough providers to serve the amount of psychiatric needs in our community is tremendous. That is, a, that is a large disparity that we often kind of forget about. You see that in South Carolina, Shannon? We do. We have a lot that actually are really starting to work with more social workers, even in pediatric clinics, which I think is unique. As we you know, talk about these, I, I kind of think as our hometown heroes, I have several who are mayors of their towns or their counties that are my providers. So want to get something done in one of those. You know, you've got the mayor, the doctor, the nurse practitioner, or the PA. Um, so that's been something very unique as we've been trying to identify resources across. I think one of my other big worries is what happens when telehealth um, goes back and, you know, maybe rural health clinics can't do be the distant provider for telehealth. The additional thing is making sure that our rural health clinics understand that while right now you can use you know, FaceTime or Google Duo or whatever they're called, but, you know, you've got to be using something that's going to be HIPAA compliant. And I think that's going to change telehealth for a lot of us. Roger, any uh, comments on that? Or we'll, we'll start to wrap it up and ask everybody to make some closing uh, remarks or observations. Well, I, I was just thinking about what Elizabeth and Shannon said, and, and you're right on track. But just to reflect, in the last week, I had an acute rheumatoid flare, okay? They can't go to the rheumatologist, it's COVID time, okay? I had a 14-year-old fall 20, 15 to 20 foot off of a roof. You can imagine what happened to his ankle, right? It was a mess. You know, we put it together until he could be seen by the orthopedic surgeon for surgery the next day after we had a console on um, congestive heart failure. The guy with pulmonary edema coming in short as a breath. And the next guy was cirrhosis with about 25 pounds of extra wire on it. And there's no specialty, there's no ability. What we have to do in this is develop a team. A team may be part of the interpreter, develop this team, maybe a specialist, maybe part of the administrative staff, maybe home health. And we need to look at these patients as a, as a, a whole program uh, for or a book, if you will, that has an introduction and, and a bunch of chapters in it that we can take care of, but everyone has a part to write in the book. And to take care of. And I think if we look at team practice, just like uh, you're in the people here today, it's, it works. It's a wonderful experience. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Uh, we have a lot of challenges, but now it's when we have challenges like this, it creates new opportunities. You know, just like the Vietnam War found that people had excessive amounts of cholesterol in their arteries. This can be a challenge to help rural America if we take it on. And I think we can. Elizabeth, any closing comments? 
Well, I hope that sessions like this um, are bringing an enlightenment to folks who do and Americans who do not live in a rural area as the rural Americans are the ones, you know, providing many resources, not just food, to the rest of America. And it's critical that we, you know, take care of these communities and their health. And I hope that um, this will educate many who, who get very isolated in their urban area because they have access to health and specialists so easy at the fingertips um, so that they will help fight for legislative change um, and bring uh, enlight further enlightenment and uh, resources to our rural communities. That's, that's my hope. Shannon, you get the last word. You know, I'm lucky I get to work for one of the offices of rural health. There is an office of rural health in every one of the 50 states across our country. And I think I like to think about rural is, you know, it's really reaching underserved residents with action and love. So there's your, you know, corny rural word for today. But these people are the hometown heroes. So the next time you drive through one of these small towns, you know, take a second, stop, go to the local cafe you will never meet more nicer people than just stopping in one of those small towns. Well, I want to end with something I should have said at the beginning, and that is thank you. Thank you for everything that uh, you are doing. You folks are on the front line. You're out there. Uh, it's clear that you have a passion for what you do, but by the same token, uh, by doing what you're doing, you're making uh, sacrifices. You're, you're dealing with problems and issues that I think a lot of folks um, will be surprised to hear about, um, but you're, you're doing it out of, out of love and out of passion, and it's clear that um, you're there because you want to be and, and trying to make a difference in your community. So I want to thank you uh, for everything that you do every day to make healthcare uh, accessible, uh, affordable, and available uh, in your communities and, and the job that you're doing and uh, my hat is off to you. Uh, this is the conclusion of uh, our, this episode, uh, Health Disparities in Rural Health. I wanna thank everybody uh, for listening in. I wanna thank our uh, participants today, Roger Wells, physician assistant from Nebraska, Shannon Chambers with the South Carolina Office of Rural Health, and Elizabeth Ellis, nurse practitioner uh, from Texas. Uh, we appreciate your being with us uh, here, and I hope you all have a great day. Stay well and stay healthy. Thank you.